Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, New York. How's it going? Make sure that if you are from New York, or near New York, or in the Tri-State area, which of course we all know what that means, make sure you head on over to the Intelligence Speech Conference on the 29th of June. Go to intelligencespeechconference.com and get 5% off your tickets by using the code WDF. You'd be mad to miss out because we've got some podcasting greats attending, such as Mike Duncan, who needs no introduction, Kevin Stroud of Mr. History of English, David Crowther, History of England, and many more besides. Intelligent Speech is an Agora Podcast Network initiative to try and get podcasts out into the public domain as much as possible. We did it last year in November with the Sound Education Podcast Conference, which was really cool because, well, first and foremost, Mr. Hardcore History himself, Dan Carden, was there. And at one point, my podcast entered into his brain because... Zachary Davis, the host of the podcast conference, was asking him questions and actually mentioned my question and my podcast's name and even said it's a really good podcast in reference to When Diplomacy Fails and that Dan Carlin should check it out. I'm not sure if Dan Carlin has checked out my show, but if he has, hello there Dan Carlin and I hope that you release the new episode soon enough. But yeah, that's a bit of a weird segue, but you should know that podcast conferences The more you support them, the more likely you are to see more of them in the future. We all are really passionate about history podcasting, as I'm sure you are. So if you want to see history podcasting succeed, if you want to make sure that history thrives, well, stick around it when diplomacy fails. But if you want to go the extra mile, head on over to intelligentspeechconference.com and buy your tickets to the show. I won't be there, but hopefully next time one of these things isn't in the United States, I will be. Don't feel too sorry for me, though, because I'll be going to Sicily on holidays instead. But maybe you're not going to talk to people in public. Maybe you'd rather talk to them across the internet, in which case Flick has got you covered. Search for the Flick app in all of the different places that you get your apps from, be that Android or Apple. You know the drill by now. Flick is great for connecting people that listen to different podcasts. It's especially great for the audiences interacting and engaging with one another and for hosts like myself to talk to you guys about the things that actually, well, that you actually care about rather than having to negotiate all the fluff that exists in Twitter and Facebook. Of course, I should mention that we have a Facebook group and it's doing pretty well. So if you want to join one of the 750 other members there, come on over and join. But if social media isn't really your thing and you have a smartphone, but you're smart enough to stay away from those social media outlets, then do check Flick out. 
because it's the best way to get in touch with me if you're not into all that Twittery, Facebooky nonsense. Otherwise, guys, thanks for joining us for this episode, and I hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 77. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 77 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time we assessed the moment when the Allied leaders finally seemed to rally behind a unified policy and their delivery of the basic rejection of the German counter-proposals on the 16th of June. This moment could hardly have been a surprising one. While the Allies disagreed on a lot of things, something which everyone agreed on was not allowing Germany to have its way, and those counter-proposals did not read like a power that was willing to accept the Allied directions unconditionally. This sense of surrender did not enter into the German government's psyche until, surprisingly, late in the day. In fact, as we will see, it was only really once the Allied threats to make use of force were made to seem real, and the German government exhausted its final appeals that this same German government resigned itself to signing, before the previous government actually resigned, that is. The period from the 16th to the 20th of June is thus an important one for our story, because it was this period where, in light of the Allied response to the German counter-proposals, the German position became much more acute. How could Ulrich von brockdorff rantzau a man who had proclaimed his unwillingness and inability to sign, now sign the treaty? As it transpired, he could not. Ulrich von brockdorff rantzau was one among many German civil servants and statesmen who elected to resign rather than face the shame. But before matters reached that point, discussions in Weimar were got underway. What options did Germany realistically have? What options did she favour the most? Questions like these will take up much of our time, as will the other relevant questions of exactly how much leeway or mercy the German government actually expected. Were her statesmen living in the clouds, hoping against hope, or did they actually have a genuine plan? It's about time we moved our focus away from the confines of the Council of Four and towards the power whom the Allied energies were meant to be aimed at. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to Weimar, Germany, in late May 1919. The Americans want to get our unconditional signature on the treaty. Their policy aims to put us off with the prospect of a future revision, but we cannot consent to that. Just as President Wilson has always failed up to now when he was called upon to assert himself, so he will continue to fail in the future whenever the opposition he meets, whether within the United States or outside them, is too great. These were the words of Germany's legation secretary sent in a letter to another official in Germany's foreign office. The names of these characters are less important than the core message which is presented here. Among other notes, the legation secretary took the time to refer to Woodrow Wilson as that pig-headed professor ignorant of Europe. 
German officials, both within their delegation at Paris and back home in Germany, had evidently lost faith in the American president to work for their interest. We have largely avoided bringing more German names into the story of the Paris Peace Conference than is absolutely necessary, since we also have more than enough names to keep track of on the Allied side. The heavy hitters, like President Ebert, Chancellor Scheidemann and the head of the German delegation, Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau, are the figures we've mostly concerned ourselves with. However, it is important to mention another significant, but also mostly forgotten source of information which the American and German sides made use of. Colonel Arthur Conger was an American military intelligence officer working in Pershing's general staff, and in mid-February, he managed to connect with a German counterpart, an officer by the name of Walter Lieb. This connection, Conger insisted, would be vital for establishing a back-channel communication between America and Germany, and his superiors seemed to agree. Chancellor Scheidemann had approved this channel as well, and by late March, Conger had received a document labelled Peace Conditions Acceptable to Germany from Mr. Lieb. This document was a prelude to the German counter-proposals which would follow two months later, and they contained a long list of demands, including instant German membership of the League of Nations, German control over her colonies as a mandatory power, and a general desire for a peace of justice, as it was called. These demands, as we have seen, were reiterated in the counter-proposals of the 29th of May. German officials had evidently had some time to think about the most important elements of the peace, The historian Lloyd Ambrosius discerned that German officials interpreted the 14 points from a distinctly German point of view, which is hardly surprising, really. Rather than accept the chasm of opinion which existed between the Allies and Germans in this regard, President Ebert went out of his way to emphasise, through the channel which Conger and Lieb maintained, that the Allies would have to abandon their unjust interpretation of the 14 points, and that documents such as the Draft Covenant of the League of Nations, available by the 14th of February before Wilson returned to the United States, would have to be modified as well to suit Germany's needs. While the difference in opinion existed between the Allies and the Germans, Ebert expected nonetheless for President Wilson to share the opinions of the German side. Because of their unrealistic expectations, Ambrosius writes, German leaders were naturally disappointed with the Versailles Treaty. And Ambrosius then added, President Ebert and Scheidemann's cabinet issued a statement to the German people on May the 9th, denouncing these conditions of peace as a contradiction to the promised 14 points. They labelled this treaty as unbearable and unfulfillable. The revised covenant that it contained obviously failed to satisfy the German desire for an inclusive league. The German government asserted that The world must abandon all hope for a League of Nations that would liberate and reconcile peoples and secure peace. What these leaders wanted was a peace that spared Germany the consequences of military defeat. The treaty, including the Covenant, obviously fell short of this goal, which they had identified with Wilson's 14 points. Indeed, the scales fell from the eyes of Germany's government with the delivery of the draft peace treaty to von Brockdorf-Ranzau on the 7th of May. Up to that point, the government in Weimar had believed, rightly or wrongly, that Wilson was on their side, and that it was only the vengeful French, 
opportunistic British and some elements of his own delegation who were leading Woodrow Wilson astray. They clung desperately to this interpretation of Wilson's role in the Paris Peace Conference and his actual character, but the Germans were fundamentally incorrect in these ideas. Furthermore, in their false interpretation of Wilson's role in the negotiations, the Germans believed it would be better to resist the treaty's terms at all costs because it would play to Wilson's hand. Throughout the month of May, these beliefs died hard, as they had served as the foundation stone of German diplomacy from the beginning of the conference. At the centre of this foundation was the hope, sometimes the expectation, that German diplomacy would be able to split the Allies and play off their differing objectives and perspectives on the treaty's harshness. The Germans had singled out the American president as the most different of the Allied leaders because he had, after all, identified himself as not bound by those old ideas which bound his European associate counterparts. The United States did not seek to gain anything material at the peace table, only a lasting peace with a newly christened organisation at its core. These ideals and the revolutionary new approach to peacemaking which the 14 points imagined captured the hope of the German government. They clung to Wilson's old promises like a lifeboat in a storm, unaware that, first, so much had changed since January 1918 when those promises had been made, and second, that Wilson was perfectly capable of moulding those apparently holy goals of the 14 points to suit his less popular ends. But were the Germans right to single out Wilson in this way? The historian Klaus Schwebe would argue that they were, and even though the chasm wasn't as total among the Allies as the Germans imagined, it was still certainly present. Schwebe wrote, The president was clearly subject to a number of conflicting political pressures. He had singled out the most important one himself. It was essential in this final crisis of the conference to keep the victors' coalition from breaking down, for, as Wilson correctly argued, a schism of this kind would have represented a diplomatic triumph for Germany. This is the major reason why he went along with Lloyd George's effort to secure the concessions, which Clemenceau did not reject immediately. Wilson sometimes met Lloyd George halfway, and sometimes he was willing to go even further to reach agreement than Lloyd George was. For this same reason, the last thing he would have done was to defy the Allies' veto and push through the concessions which he favoured, regardless of the consequences. To have done that would have been inconsistent with the role of arbiter between Lloyd George and Clemenceau, which he had assumed in this stage of the negotiations, and it would have been frowned upon in the United States as well. The mood in his own country, indeed, was a second factor which Wilson could not completely ignore. For domestic political reasons, he needed to conclude the peace soon, and it could not be excessively watered down. Any leniency towards Germany, however, would only increase the difficulty of winning approval of the treaty from the Senate, where the main opposition which Wilson would have to face would come from the right. Wilson expected it to be difficult enough to obtain Senate approval of the League of Nations Covenant, and he knew that any blatantly obvious concessions to the German counter-proposals would only increase this difficulty. This explains his basic antipathy for the policy of leniency, which Lloyd George seemed to be advocating at first. So as Schwebe makes clear here, the American president was facing a lot of pressures, but what of the aforementioned back-channel of Colonel Conger and Mr. Lieb? Could they have played a role in helping to smooth over the misunderstandings in German-American diplomacy, particularly in the first half of June, when the Allied response to the German counter-proposals was in development? In fact, we can discern an important development in this regard. Above all, Wilson's clear decision during this process 
to choose Allied unity over moderation towards Germany looms into view. In some cases, such as with his relations towards Lloyd George, those two considerations went hand in hand. Most of the time, though, Wilson felt compelled to ignore or reject hopeful German approaches on the basis that they could jeopardise Allied unity. Thanks to the position of Colonel Conger, in addition, the Germans were drip-fed information over late May and early June. By the time the Allied reply had been received in the middle of the month, indeed, the German delegation had been told, in no uncertain terms by Colonel Conger, that contrary to what they might have expected, America was just as willing to participate in the threatened military adventure into Germany if the Weimar government refused to sign. American troops would defend the Poles, would facilitate the partitioning of Germany, would participate, perhaps, in similar atrocities on German citizens to those visited upon the Belgian and French citizenry in 1914. This, said Conger, would be akin to a disaster for Germany. If all this happens, Conger said, France will have finally achieved the war aim which it thought had been withheld from it so far. With this warning in their possession, it must surely have been plain by mid-June that Germany could expect to have no success in its efforts to split the Allies. Furthermore, Ulrich von Brockdorf-Rantzau would have known that the Allies were very serious indeed about maintaining this united front in the face of German stubbornness. In fact, so certain had Brockdorf-Rantzau become of the futility of Colonel Conger's channel for solving the German problems that he requested it be closed off. On the 12th of June, significantly a few days before the final nail in the coffin of German hope was hammered in, the government in Weimar approved of this policy. There was therefore no longer any communication between the American and German governments from that point. We might ask with some reason why Brockdorf Ransau advocated this approach. Surely it was better to keep all options open with the challenges that loomed ahead. The incredible answer is that, rather than giving up hope of a successful diplomatic solution to Germany's woes, Brockdorf Ransau planned to use the threatened war against Germany to his advantage. The plan was as bold as it was reckless. Knowing full well that the Allies were serious in their threats to make good the use of force and that Marshal Foch would be leading their efforts, Brockdorf Ransau began to see this conflict not as a disaster for Germany, but as an opportunity. The German counter-proposals, Brockdorf Ransau believed, had underlined the divisions present in the Allied camp. That was why the Allies had taken so long to deliver their verdict on those terms. While the Allies agreed on the need to invade Germany if she did not accept the terms, the question was, just how far would this conviction go? German military planners imagined a nightmare scenario where the whole of the Rhineland, Hanover, Bavaria and vast portions of the interior would all be occupied. Where some might have viewed that as the end of Germany, however, Brockdorf Ransau did not. Instead, he viewed it as the beginning of a new chapter in Germany's life cycle, this one characterised by resistance and sacrifice, which would dramatically bolster her reputation. It wasn't just about resisting the shame of a humiliating peace for Brockdorf Ransau, though. It was also about posing as the final defendant of the 14 points. Essentially, Brockdorf Ransau seems to have believed that not Wilson's United States, but a Germany oppressed by the victors, would be the spokesperson for the left throughout the world. Speaking from this perspective, Brockdorf Ransau had actually warned the victors in early May 1919 of the danger which it would pose to world peace if a nationalistic socialism were to take the place of a nationalistic capitalism, such as he felt was 
embodied in the Western powers. These eerily prophetic warnings notwithstanding, remember the actual name of the Nazi party was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, Proctor of Ransau had the support of several figures within the delegation, one of whom declared, Within me abides an invincible belief that the ideas for which we are fighting are the ideas of the future, and that whatever the treaty may look like, in the conflict of ideas, the German and not the Allied delegates will in the future be held to be the victors. I likewise believe that the practical results of our work here will not hurt our people deep in their spirit, even if the Reich shall be broken to pieces because of it. Exactly how far did Brockdorf Ransau's vision go? Did it contain any long-term practical elements? In fact, his vision was as thorough as it was unreal. The masses in the Entente countries, Brockdorf Ransau felt, would not be able to resist the power of these new ideas. The people would pressure their leaders and thereby prevent their governments from carrying out their coercive policy against Germany. Brockdorf Ransau believed that he had already seen signs of what he called a revolutionary crisis in the Entente countries. This crisis would worsen as the masses would force their governments to change their course, and this change would initiate the collapse of the enemy coalition. And then, once her enemies had splintered and revolted, the moment for negotiations and a thorough revision of the peace treaty would have come. Brockdorf Ransau indicated that he expected this reversal to come about very soon, at one point alluding to a time span of two months. Brockdorf Ransau's colleagues in the delegation bought into this illusion. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...with one subordinate completely adopting the argument of his high-ranking friend, when in a letter of the 4th of June, he tried to dispel all worries about the future. 
We are not confronting the Rome that Carthage did, Brockdorf Rance's colleague wrote, but a coalition which is crumbling. Additional, darker pictures of what would follow if Germany did accept the treaty included the fall of democratic socialism and the rise of the far right, which would be unstoppable in the face of their national shame. We will dig our own grave, demoralise the entire nation, destroy democracy and socialism, insisted Max Warburg, member of the prominent Warburg Jewish banking family and later a board member on the Reichsbank during the interwar years, adding, For once the peace treaty goes into effect and misery and hunger appear among us, everyone will turn against those who signed this treaty. The people will forget that the men responsible for this whole misfortune are the ones who started the war, and there will be a swing to the right or revolution from the most radical quarter. Although, of course, Brockdorf Rance's vision and claims were more illusionary than rational, the foreign minister's view completely captivated his advisers. Among them, too, the rejection of the treaty appeared to be the lesser of two evils. Opening Germany up to a potentially devastating invasion by the Allied powers was considered somehow less inherently bad than accepting the unacceptable, assigning their names to this document of shame and admitting that Germany was actually beaten. Such developments throughout the month of June should illustrate how warped the sense of reality had become in Germany. That these officials believed death and a resumption of the war, accompanied of course by a reimposition of the hated blockade which had been momentarily lifted, was preferable to signing. Easy though it is to lambast these figures for playing with the lives of their countrymen and for failing to accept the reality of their hopeless situation, it is also easy to understand that position, even if we maintain that it is morally indefensible. For the intangible concept of national honour and prestige, to avoid tarnishing Germany's good name, to prevent national humiliation, these figures chose to gamble with additional German lives like any other offensive on the front. We should hardly be surprised that when it was learned the Allies had rejected the counter-proposals on the 16th of June, the German delegation in their turn elected unanimously to reject the peace treaty. They would resolutely refuse to accept it, whatever the consequences might be, since these consequences at least provided additional opportunities, whereas signing the treaty would close the door on the humiliation. That might well have been it, and the narrative of the Paris Peace Conference might now have degenerated into a terrible story on the resumption of the war. Germany would have been devastated and destroyed, and the true extent of her defeat would have been brought home to her. Contrary to Brockdorf Rantzau's anticipations, the intervention back into Germany and the resumption of hostilities was very unlikely indeed to affect a collapse in Allied unity. In fact, German rejection of the peace treaty, after the processes of negotiation had been undertaken, would have shown the populations in the Allied countries that Germany wanted everything its own way. While nobody would have relished the resumption of hostilities at all, it would be a stretch to suppose that they would have feared them, or that the rift among the Allies would have taken place. One of the few things the Allies could agree on, when they weren't giving out to Marshal Foch for his changing opinions, was the necessity of making real their threat to invade Germany if it proved necessary. Perhaps, if the conflict went on for more than a year, and reluctant Allied soldiers continued to be forced into the fray, problems would have emerged, but Wilson had worked so hard to preserve Allied unity, and had sacrificed so much to maintain it, that he was unlikely to buckle now. So Wilson, as this weakest link in the Allied fence, doesn't really hold up in this regard. The French government, similarly, did
did not desire to rid the world of German power with a second war, they just wanted Berlin to admit that it was defeated, as France had had to do in 1871. The British as well were happy to get through peace what they had been unable to conquer, but it would have been impossible for Lloyd George to have ignored the challenge to Allied unity, which a total German rejection of the treaty would have occasioned. Remember, the Germans wouldn't have been only rejecting the peace treaty, they would also have been rejecting the months of hard work which the Big Three had engaged with. It would have been a slap in the face from a foe who would not accept the hand he had been dealt. There would have been little mercy in reserve for such an opponent, and for the sake of proving their point if nothing else, the Allies would have sacrificed an awful lot to drive this point home. Perhaps if Proctor Franza had had his way then, Germany would have felt the true extent of its defeat in 1919, and her leaders would have come to terms with the fact of many states' life cycles, that being that you win some and you lose some and then you move on. From there it would be a question of how utterly destroyed German resistance was by the Allied invasion. What would it take, in other words, for the stabbed-in-the-back mythos to be eradicated? Allied flags fluttering over the Reichstag, perhaps, a la the Red Army in 1945, or perhaps the worsening of circumstances which forced the Germans to the peace table in the first place. It is impossible to know for sure, and it is a matter of speculation for alternative history majors to draw their own conclusions. What is important, though, is that this vision of opportunistic self-sacrifice by Brockdorf Ransau and his delegation did not come to life as we know. And the reason for this was relatively simple. Brockdorf Ransau, seated in his delegation in Paris, may have been unwilling to accept the peace treaty, and he may have been willing to tempt destruction, but the government back in Weimar was certainly not. While Chancellor Scheidemann and President Ebert presided over the government, this government was not united in the slightest. From the first week of June, even those two normally defiant officials were beginning to have doubts. Scheidemann commissioned German officials on the 4th of June to complete a study of what would happen if Germany elected to reject the treaty, and the prognosis was not pretty. Ugly though it was, it was similar to Brockdorf Ransau's imagined consequences in many respects, but with a critical difference. Brockdorf Ransau supposed that, following some terrible initial consequences, Germany would shortly be back on its feet, because America would never countenance a wasteland in place of the German state. Those officials tasked with imagining the Allied wrath felt differently though. They anticipated a German state ripped into pieces, assailed by Bolshevism, partitioned by its neighbours, and economically disadvantaged for as much as three generations. The only silver lining, imagined the German government's war planners, was that German honour would be preserved. But this was not even guaranteed, since what kind of stomach could the successor states of the German Empire have to fight when their strength had been so weakened? And this was the centre of the fear among the German government, that the Reich would be partitioned, reduced to its old kingdoms, in the event of an Allied invasion, and that this terrible outcome would be made permanent rather than temporary. This latter fear was especially acute because it was known that certain governments like Bavaria was prepared to negotiate a separate armistice with the Allies. And additionally, there was concern that Prussia's iteration of the German Empire would be extinguished forever once its appendages discovered the full extent of her futile plans for resistance. How many dead bodies was the preservation of the Empire worth to average Germans? What if they believed that Prussian militarism was primarily responsible for the crisis? What if the Allies offered them sumptuous terms to make peace and abandon the Prussian core of the Empire? 
So much of this was up in the air, and this was before one even considered Germany's actual capacity for armed resistance. While the defeat of German arms was predicted, at least some resistance was also expected by Brockdorf Ransau and his delegation, in line with the vision of something akin to national martyrdom. Germans would fight to the bitter end, as much as they could, to preserve their democratic vision of a united Germany, and the Allies would be the ultimate bad guys for suppressing this dream. Yet Brockdorf Ransau hadn't really bothered to consult, or then to listen, to what the German High Command had had to say. It more than had its hands full with the East, the conflict in Silesia and the tumult in the Baltic. The German commanders had no appetite for conflict in the West, and the Allied threats from late May had made a serious impact upon them. They, unlike Brockdorf Ransau, could see no upside to the unmitigated disaster which would follow the Allied invasion. In fact, it would be akin to a humiliation once more, as the demoralised and frustrated German soldiers fled or were brushed aside, vindicating in the process the Allied argument that the Germans were defeated and the German people were being led astray. It is also worth considering the possibility that Germany's high command noted how this humiliation would remove their ability to cry betrayal by the civilian government. If the Allies resumed the war, it could not be claimed that Germany was stabbed in the back, but defeated at the front by the enemy whom, it was loudly proclaimed, had not been able to defeat her in the past. Just how resolutely determined the Allies were to make their threats come to life was made abundantly clear on the 20th of June, when the Council of Four confirmed their authorization for Marshal Foch to advance to the River Weser and to conclude separate peace negotiations with the disparate old German kingdoms like Hanover, Bavaria and Saxony. Thus, the partitioning of Germany was put to paper as a contingency plan only a few days after news of Brachdorf Ransau's planned rejection of the treaty was made known. Now, it should be stated that by the 28th of June, Wilson and his counterparts expected Germany to sign at the last minute. However, on the other hand, it is important not to doubt the President's determination to follow through. Not he, nor Clemenceau, or Lloyd George, could afford to relent at this late stage in the game, and the minutes make that clear. As Klaus Schwabe confirms, The fact that the Americans and the British were ready to depart totally from their earlier German policy in order to force the submission of the Berlin government made it likely that continuing German resistance would only unite them further and bring them closer together with the French as well. There was not the slightest chance that their coalition would collapse. Although the Allied leaders only gathered for the Council of Four three times between the 17th to 20th of June, the decisions reached on those days illustrated how deadly serious they were about proceeding down the dark path of resuming the war. The minutes of the 17th of June contained the most complete account yet of the plan for resuming the war, and while Clemenceau noted that Marshal Patin had urged caution, the French Premier indicated his determination to support Foch and see the policy through. Interestingly, the declared Allied goal was not the conquest of Germany, but to force her into signing the peace. This directive read, The offensive of the Allied armies is ready to start again on a day prescribed by the governments. The armies, ready at first time for May the 20th, have been prepared again as a consequence of the orders given by Marshal Foch on June 14th and confirmed on the 16th. The operations, except for an order of the governments to the contrary, will commence the day they have indicated, June 23rd, 7pm. It is difficult to foresee at what point of this movement we shall obtain peace, and whether it will even be necessary or not, 
to go to Berlin to overthrow the German government. The clearly defined timetable meant that the Germans would only have a few days to signify their acceptance of the Allied reply. Indeed, as we learned in the last episode, within the Allied reply was a demand that the Germans must respond within five days. It was then at the very last moment, literally up to the final hour of the deadlines, that the German government confirmed, in the end, that it would accept the peace treaty as it then stood. However, that's a bit of a fast forward. We should not imagine that the period of the 17th to the 23rd of June contained a straightforward tale of German resignation. In fact, it contained resignation of a different kind and the final act of protest, which actually did the Allies a favour in the end. The 20th of June seems to have been a critical moment, since it was on this day that the most discussions regarding the intended Allied policy towards Germany were hosted. The military representatives of the Big Four were all listened to, and after Marshal Foch spoke for France and the Allied command, General Robertson spoke for Britain, and General Tasker Howard Bliss spoke up for the United States. Bliss's comments are especially interesting, because that American delegate had been of the opinion in the past that the German treaty contained several harsh elements, which went against Wilson's old principles enshrined in the 14 points. Bliss, in short, was among those who believed that the Germans were justified in the arguments laid down in their counter-proposals. Yet here, on Friday the 20th of June, he argued for nothing less than the forceful imposition of the treaty. If the Germans refused to sign the treaty, Bliss said, something must clearly be done. The general added that he could see nothing else but military action in the form of an advance. Indeed, in line with this theme of something having to be done, Bliss continued to imagine the outcome of their invasion. There would undoubtedly be propaganda to the effect that the occupation of Berlin was only a step towards the occupation of Moscow, nor could we now judge what its effects would be on the Czechs and Poles, or what would be the effect of military pressure on Germany. We did not know whether their forces are sufficient, or whether or how great additions might have to be called for, or whether the forces might not get through to Berlin with very little resistance nor whether, when Berlin was reached, the signatures of peace would be any nearer. Something, however, must be done. Without knowing Marshal Foch's plan, I have studied the matter with the officers of his own staff, and I have come to very much the same conclusions. This meeting on the 20th of June hammered home other important developments. The River Weser would be the declared limit of the Allied invasion, as the outcome of Foch's overtures to the southern German governments was awaited. Foch, it was said, had been placed in total control of all Polish armies as well, which offered the Allies a unique advantage to constrain Germany on both sides. In addition to facilitate aid coming from Prague, the Big Four worked to imagine how the peace between the Czechs and Hungarians might be reached. Just beyond the River Weser was Hanover, while the cities of Bremen, Göttingen, Kell, Minden, Kassel and Oldenburg resided on its course or nearby it. The River Weser was perhaps the last geographic barrier Germany had to offer, and it was an ideal location to initiate diplomacy to potential separatist movements, particularly in Hanover, which would be within striking distance. All the Allied leaders were in agreement, with Clemenceau noting, according to the stenographer Sir Morris Hankey, that What he understood was that the march on Berlin was conditioned by the achievement of successive armistices in the south. He did not complain of that modification of the original plan as he had understood it. He thought it was prudent. At all costs, anything in the nature of a setback or a check must be avoided. 
he had been forcibly struck by the fact that all the Allied and associated generals were in agreement that a march as far as the Vaser was feasible and that thereafter supplementary troops would be required for the further advance. He hoped and understood, however, that if the Allies were favoured by chance, no further forces would be required. So the Allies intended to play on the demoralisation of the German camp and divide and conquer, thereby, hopefully, reducing the amount of troops which would be needed and perhaps even negating the need for a march on Berlin. There was no question as to the fact that they would march on Berlin if it proved necessary, though, and while it would take them a while, both Wilson and Lloyd George in their turn indicated that reinforcements would be brought in. In other words, the record of the minutes illustrate plainly that Brockdorf Ranzau's vision for a collapsed Allied front and splintered aims was unfeasible. If anything, the Allies were more determined than ever to exact the consequences of rejection upon Germany. Their plans to divide and conquer should not necessarily be seen as a temporary measure either, as the minutes record how Foch planned dividing reparations payments among these separate German governments, which strongly hinted that the division would at least be made temporary, or until the reparations were paid, maybe something akin to the plan they had for the Rhineland, where after 15 years, the region would be expunged of Allied troops. Though they were not clued into the formidable extent of these Allied decisions, the German government was aware of Allied resolve and determination to follow through on threats which had been made consistently since the treaty had been handed over. Despite this, though, Brockdorf Ranzau reacted with fury to the Allied refusal to accept the counter-proposals. Since these were the only terms which Brockdorf Ranzau found acceptable, he elected to leave Paris for Weimar on the 18th of June. His delegation went with him, sending in the process a clear message to the Big Three and going some way towards explaining why talk of military reprisals began increasingly doing the rounds in Allied Council meetings from that point. A German delegation that intended to sign this treaty would hardly have cause to leave the building, and thus the German exit was interpreted, invariably, as a last futile act of resistance by a desperate regime, or as a signal of German intentions to face the storm, come what may. Within a day of returning to Weimar, Proctor Franzau resigned as head of the German delegation, and the German Chancellor Scheidemann actually followed suit as well. Only President Ebert was now left standing as the opponent of the treaty, but if Germany was to avoid collapse, it would require a new government. It was difficult indeed to find a government which would be willing to approve of the treaty. The Weimar finance minister, Matthias Erzberger, stayed on as a moderate voice and helped gather together a new government under Chancellor Gustav Bauer. Erzberger had been one of the German officials sent to sign the armistice back in November, and now he assumed the vice-chancellorship and a leading role in the government. Brockdorf Ranzau's replacement as foreign minister was Hermann Müller, and Müller would be one of the Germans tasked with the signing of the treaty at Versailles. The infamous profile which Brockdorf Ranzau had cast on the 7th of May when he first received the peace terms would soon be forgotten, replaced by Müller's more moderate, statesmanlike demeanour. Hermann Müller, in time, would come to serve twice as Chancellor, most notably during 1928-1930, when the Weimar Republic, which he had helped bring into being, teetered on the edge of collapse following the Wall Street crash. Of course, by the time the new cabinet had taken its seats on the 21st of June 1919, all of this could not have been known. There was still a smidgen of time left, it appeared, to appeal to the good nature of the Allies, 
Unfortunately for this new cabinet though, any hope of exploiting the occasion of the removal of the hardliners would be lost when, many miles from the atmosphere of their desperate cabinet meeting, that same day, the German Navy attempted to take matters into their own hands at a place called Scapaflow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.